Welcome to Talk World Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk World Radio, we are talking about the war on Yemen. Our guest, Aisha Juman, is founder and president of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. She has over 30 years of experience in public health, including viral vaccine, preventable diseases, cancer research, maternal and child health and nutrition, and women in development. She worked for the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention for over a decade. Juman also worked in her native home, Yemen, with the UN Population Fund and the UN Development Program. She also participated in health-related program development of evaluation and training activities for the Peace Corps. She has served on the faculty of Emory University as well as Sana'a University. Juman is currently working as an independent consultant coordinating health projects in Yemen. Aisha Juman, welcome to Talk World Radio. Hello, David. Thank you very much for inviting me to be with you today. Thank you for coming on and for the work you're doing. Tell us the general state of affairs in Yemen, the, the deaths, the illnesses. So, and given how many wars and, and disasters that are happening in the world, um, that is actually extremely telling. We have uh, over 16 million people in Yemen who are hungry today because of the blockade that's imposed on the Yemeni people and the war. We have uh, over 30,000 people who are who need medical evacuation and who are not able to travel because of blockade on the airports. We have uh, 5 million Yemeni children who are severely malnourished, um, at least 40,000 of them uh, within two weeks. Every time they don't get immediate help, they, they die. The impact of malnutrition, especially in children, is haunting because um, malnutrition affects the brain development. So now we have millions of children who are severely malnourished. That is going to have a huge impact on their brain development for futures to come and many generations to come. Uh, if you look at mental health illnesses, uh, especially uh, depression and post-traumatic uh, stress syndrome, we found in a study in, in Sana'a that 80% of the Yemeni kids experience PTSD. That's These are just really um, haunting numbers. These are numbers that you can't wrap your mind around them. Uh, if you look at infectious diseases, um, we, you know, uh, UNICEF and all agencies have said every 10 minutes a Yemeni ch child dies of preventable infectious diseases. We have, uh, you know, we had the largest cholera outbreak that was ever recorded in history uh, in Yemen uh, because a lot of the water supplies were, uh, you know, bombed by uh, the Saudi-led coalition. Unfortunately, with U.S. support, and the U.S. continues to support the Saudi-led war on Yemen. Uh, if you look at, you know, even vaccine-preventable diseases. We have many outbreaks, whether it's measles, polio. Yemen was free of polio. Now polio is back in Yemen. If you look at diphtheria, which is highly infectious and highly deadly, we have, uh, and Yemen had not had a diphtheria outbreak since 1980. Imagine now the diphtheria outbreak now is raging in Yemen, has been for many years now since the war started. So all the health indicators for Yemen uh, had deteriorated. So in 2016, we did an analysis 
of the health indicators in Yemen that was published. And we found by 2016, and that's only two years into the war, that Yemen had lost 10 years of gains it made in health indicators. The situation, of course, is worse now, and we are in the eighth year of this war. So I cannot think of what the health indicators now. I'm sure they're at least 30 years behind where they need to be today. So millions of people damaged, including permanently damaged, approximately how many dead as a result uh, of the war and, and the blockade and all of the suffering you described? Yeah, the, the UN uh, reports that at least 400,000 people have died in Yemen. 70% of those died in uh, non-combatant for from other reasons, such as famine, infectious diseases. However, as an epidemiologist and someone who's worked on not just in Yemen, I've worked in multiple countries um, in, in, in health, including the U.S., we know that Yemen doesn't have a surveillance or death registries. Uh, so a lot of the people who die, we don't know they died. There is no record to show us the true numbers of those who are dying. So we don't have surveillance that says how many injured, how many are sick, that uh, we can count on, but mostly in terms of death, and especially if you're gonna die of infectious diseases, not of bullets. If you're gonna die of hunger, these are gonna be dying in their homes and nobody's counting them. So my estimate, my estimate, and this is gonna be extremely conservative, uh, is that we have over a million people died. Uh. And, and you're working now on health projects in Yemen. Is there a problem with uh, obtaining necessary supplies and medicines and so forth? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, so we in our health projects, whenever we try to get something to Yemen, it, we never can get it uh, to Yemen because of the blockade. Hadeida port, which is the largest port in Yemen and uh, has the capacity to receive 90% of what Yemen needs and has been acting in that capacity, is now blocked. Uh, only food and some fuel ships is allowed through that port. So medical equipments, medical supplies are not allowed through it. So I'll give you two examples that Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation that I established and I'm the president of right now have tried to send to Yemen. One, we tried to send uh, medications for leukemia cases in Yemen, and leukemia mostly affects children. And we had donations from Novartis uh, to treat every single case of leukemia in Yemen. And they offered us free of charge all the medications for a whole year. Uh, we have not been able, and this was over three years ago, we have not been able to get the medicine to Yemen. That's how severe this thing is. So, you know, many kids are dying because we're not able to get a medicine that's available and, you know, and being donated. This is, you know, millions of dollars worth of medicine that we're not able to get to Yemen. There was another shipment of handheld uh, ultrasound devices that we purchased for hospitals in Yemen. It took over a year to negotiate uh, sending them to Yemen. Now we finally send them to Dubai, where they can be then taken to Yemen. We're still, in, and that's another, you know, it's been months now. And I don't know when they're going to get to Yemen because we still have to get Saudi-led coalition permission to get them into Yemen. Um, every time somebody asks me for sending things to Yemen, I'm like, I really cannot accept anymore taking anything to Yemen because, um, the, you know, it, it's just so hard 
to ship to Yemen. We have now a, a container with uh, medicine and medical supplies that was shipped to Aden. We don't know if we're going to be able to move it around. Um, so that's how hard it is to get things to Yemen. But people are shipping billions of dollars worth of goods from the United States to Yemen via Saudi Arabia. It's just all of those goods are weapons, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the, the U.S. provides Saudi. So Saudi, 73% of the Saudi arms are from the U.S. Imagine 73%. This is according to uh, the Brookings Institute. Um, and of all the weapons sales the U.S. has, 25% goes to Saudi Arabia. So imagine how much power we have over Saudi Arabia if we decide to exercise that power. Uh, it, it's, what is fascinating for me is to contrast the behavior of President Trump to President Biden. When President Trump needed anything from the Saudi, he would pick up the phone and say, if you don't do this, we're not going to support you. We're not going to send you weapons. And they always obliged. Uh, in the current administration, uh, unfortunately, we're not, you know, we're seeing a president who is willing to uh, yield to Saudi demands. Actually, um, recent reports from Saudi media saying the reason President Biden delayed his trip to Saudi Arabia is because he hasn't met Saudi demands. And I'm not even sure what those demands are for the president of the most powerful nation in the world to um, have demands from a country like Saudi Arabia that is completely dependent on U.S. Uh, for its, uh, you know, royal family existence. Well, I, I appreciate the contrast. We know Republican presidents demand things, including of Congress and Democratic presidents bow down and beg. But but what did Trump demand of Saudi Arabia that did anybody any good? It certainly wasn't an end to the war or the blockade. In fact, Congress was willing to, to pretend to end the war when it could count on Trump vetoing that, that uh, action. Yeah, so it was a time when... Uh, Oil prices were, were extremely low and fracking companies here in the U.S. were hurting. So he asked them to shut down production and, and they, he got what he wanted. So, the, you know, the companies, the fracking companies here. And how Biden wants them to increase and they won't do it, right? And they won't do it in, in, in the middle of, a, you know, international crisis with the Ukraine war, uh, the Russian aggression against Ukraine. Um, the, the hypocrisy also of this administration is that, you know, although they are calling constantly on, on the Russian war crimes, they are being very uh, quiet. And actually, on the contrary, they are supporting similar war crimes uh, in Yemen, actually more war crimes in Yemen. Uh, the Washington Post just uh, with Columbia University just published a report that showed over 80 uh, war crimes committed with U.S. weapons in Yemen, with U.S. complicity. Do you think that if for just one or two days Yemeni war victims were treated like Ukrainian war victims in major media outlets, that a few people could name the colors of the Yemeni flag and that the war would be would be ended, at least U.S. participation would be ended. I mean, isn't there an incredible contrast in how the victims of these wars are treated? Absolutely. And this is something that we all have been pointing out to the administration. 
I spoke to my representative, Adam Smith, who is the chair of the Armed Services Committee. And I mentioned, I said, look at what, you know, the media and you and Congress and the US administration is doing for the Ukraine. Why can't you do something similar with Yemen? Um, he did not want, he said he just doesn't want to compare Ukraine and Yemen, which is kind of odd. Why wouldn't you compare Yemen and, and Ukraine? But it, it, you know, the the reason they don't want to compare it because they are complicit. The U.S. is complicit. The U.S. is supporting the the Saudi-led war on Yemen. If they just stop sending tires for the jets that they use to bomb Yemen, those jets will be grounded. Those jets need the tires every other day uh, so they can fly. That's all they need to do. Stop sending, you know, tires to jets. So they are the U.S. is complicit in all the war crimes, and what is something that also is something that bothers me quite a bit. But having grown up in Yemen, I've always looked at the media with you know I, with with a critical eye. Uh, who owns this outlet? Why are they reporting the way they report? Because we you know in in Yemen you grow up not trusting the media. It's usually propaganda. So when I came to the U.S., as, even as a youngster, I, I came when I was 17, uh, whether it was ABC or CBS or NBC then, I actually would go and find out who owns that outlet. Because what we hear is what that owner wants us to hear. And uh, the U.S. media actually is towing the U.S. line when it comes to the war in Yemen. Uh, people call it the forgotten war. It's not a forgotten war. It's a blacked out war. They purposefully black it out. It's not that they don't know about it. They definitely know about it, but they don't want the average American to know what's going on. Because if the average American knows atrocities that are committed in their names, they will be outraged. It, the, the Russian said to the American, I'm here to study your propaganda. And the American said, what propaganda? And the Russian said, exactly. Be, because the Americans don't know they're being lied to, right? I mean, that's, yes. that's what's so powerful about it. They don't know. Yeah, and I think now with social media, I think people are more and more are learning about it. We have now, uh, because of people power, because people were contacting their representatives, we had a war power resolution that was introduced in the House. We now have 62 representatives on that war power resolution. I mean, without the social media, without the activists, without you know having people like you giving us voice, so the American public knows what's going on, we would not be able to do what we're doing. So we're very you know, fortunate to be living during times where, where, where we can educate people uh, and they don't have to wait for the New York Times to tell them what's going on because it will always uh, support the US government policies. We're speaking with Aisha Juman, who is founder and president of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. Aisha, when the Congress members passed that War Powers Resolution twice when Trump was president, the first time they'd ever done that with any war since the thing was created in 1973, they could count on a, on a veto. They knew it wasn't going to actually end the war. And then Biden became president. And it's yes, we've demanded it, demanded it, but it's been a year and a half. What, uh, what have they been waiting for? You, see, you you brought something that is um, it's heartbreaking. It, it, do I consider our uh, lawmakers cynical that they will pass something knowing 
that it will be vetoed. That's the only reason they, uh, you know, they passed it. I hope not. And I hope not to believe that truly, but I'm, I'm really getting to the realization that sometimes they actually would do that to placate us. But remember speeches, remember the passionate moral urgency of now speeches and then nothing for a year and a half. How do you explain it? I, I agree with you. I am 100% with you. I'm, I, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll use an example of my representative, Adam Smith, who supported the NDAA, which is exactly the same language we have now in the work power resolution, uh, but is refusing to support the work power resolution. The reason is he knew, he knew the NDAA will be stripped during negotiation. So he was just pretending to be listening, pretending to care. Um, and now with, you know, with a, 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 Democrat, a, a Democrat in the White House, they do not want to challenge him. They do not want to challenge the administration. And then we have a national security advisor, McCurrick, who says, you know, specifically that he, uh, and he's the, the first person deposed like Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed call when they need anything from the administration. He is the architect of the Biden visit to Saudi Arabia. So if you have a national security advisor who creates, actually somebody quote, uh, uh, the Huffington Post just published an article about him. He creates disasters and crisis so he can be called to deal with them. So we, uh, yes, I agree with you, but it's just so hard to accept uh, on, on a human level that our lawmakers can be so deceiving to us, the constituents, uh, for the sake of foreign powers. Well, I, I couldn't agree more, but after a couple centuries of it, we sort of have to deal with it. Um, what, do, what, what should, I mean, Biden has talked about going and visiting Saudi Arabia, and a lot of people and organizations are demanding that he not go and visit Saudi Arabia. It seems to me more important that he stop selling weapons to Saudi Arabia and giving military training to Saudi and and supporting the Saudi crimes and participating in a Saudi war and similarly is supporting and arming dozens of other oppressive governments around the world this seems more substantive to me than where he goes on a trip but is that is that a valuable demand we should be making or what should we be demanding and no i'm 100% with you i really don't care if he goes uh, for me, what matters is that if, if he does go to Saudi Arabia, he makes our, you know, policy very clear. No support for the war in Yemen. Uh, there are a lot of people in Saudi Arabia who have been oppressed by the, the you know, always oppressed, but more uh, with Mohammed bin Salman at the helm of uh, the country. Uh, we know of the Khashoggi's killing. We know in Lebanon, for example, when he kidnapped the prime minister of Lebanon and forced him to resign on TV. So this is someone who is unhinged. This is someone, the uh, actually the German intelligence called him a destabilizer. Uh, the, the German intelligence published a report in 2015 calling Mohammed bin Salman a destabilizer for peace in the region. So he is someone that we should not trust. He is someone that we all should be wary of. Uh, and to have, you know, the president of the United States going there to, it, it's not even just the visit, but it's the tone of the visit. The Saudis saying, you know, 
we're postponing the t visit because he hasn't responded to our demands and he needs these visits to be reelected. It's kind of odd uh, for the largest democracy and the, the, you know, a, a democratic nation like ours uh, that we need a, a dictator, a war criminal to say that our president needs to you know, visit first, get the demands met so he can be reelected. Um, the, the whole thing is really totally absurd. What, what is the logic there? It, it, it's either so-called campaign funding, that is bribery, or, or it's a misunderstanding of public interest because there are no polls in the United States saying you have to kiss up to the Saudi royal family to get elected. I haven't seen them. <laughs> he is delusional. That, that's for sure. Mohammed bin Salman thinks he's more important than he is. But also, I think our behavior with him has given him that sense. Uh, that he is more important than he is. He probably feels uh, like many bandits who've been writing on this and insisting that our relationship with Saudi is important, that the Saudi control uh, us. I mean, if, you, if you've read a lot of people who've been writing, whether it's in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, how important this relationship is for, for the US government, uh, you would think that you know without the Saudi, we, we will collapse as a nation. Uh, so it's possible that they think is that, you know, with increased uh, gas prices or fuel prices, that the risk for uh, the re-election is going to be uh, higher. But I mean, again, that's a myth because the U.S. does not need uh, Saudi fuels. We are the largest producer of fuel at this point in time. And that happened under President Obama. And uh, even the increase in oil that the Saudi have agreed to would include a share for the Russians, whom we started this whole thing uh, with. And uh, a JP Morgan Chase uh, published that with the increase that they have suggested, it's like going to battle with rubber bullets or fighting a war with rubber bullets. So it, the whole thing, as I said, doesn't make any sense. But we have a national security advisor who's willing to bend for these, uh, for the Saudis and the Emiratis, and I don't understand why. And and yet, what the U.S. public does support, according to various polls, is shifting to sustainable energy and giving the future of life on the planet a, a better chance. Uh, when there's just all this squabbling over which flavor of oil it's best to destroy the planet with, Russian or Saudi, uh, I'm not sure people care that much. Uh, you know, which poison they take. Why why isn't this an opportunity to to change course and and keep a few campaign promises? Absolutely right. I mean, again, uh, as, as we are seeing in terms of heat waves this year, uh, heat waves are, you know, all over the place. Uh, in, in India, basically, hawks are falling off the sky, dying because of the heat waves. Uh, and so, yeah, we need renewable energy. And we do have actually now more renewable energy. We have, uh, you know, our cars now more uh, are dependent on uh you know, batteries in Sana'a, which is, you know, a, a city that's been besieged for the last eight years. Um, it's actually probably the greenest city in the world now because they have switched to solar panels because, the, you know, their fuel wasn't allowed into the country. So if a country under siege can switch to solar panels, 
why can't a country like the U.S. with more resources do that? Uh, I think you are absolutely right. We do need to get away from um, oil. And we know that Saudi oil uh, is, has the largest footprint of any other country in the world. I, I, another thing that happened under President Obama was the successful drone war on Yemen, uh, which was applauded at the time as better than another war, because with a drone war, nobody gets killed. Uh, and, and yet that depends on who counts as nobody. And many of us were predicting, well, drone wars turn into the other kind of war. Was that not where much of this violence came from? Uh, how, what created this mess and how are we going to get out of it? Yeah, a, a drone wars uh, kill a lot of innocent people. And uh, the fact that, you know, the, the, the US public doesn't know about it is actually heartbreaking. Um, we know of many children and, and women who died in these drone wars um, when, in fact, the, the cost of flying those drone wars and of the program itself, had it been used for development in Yemen, the, the need for you know, a lot of these kids uh, who became radicalized, we could have saved them and we could have saved Yemen and, and the U.S., uh, and, and the world, actually, because we've spent a lot of money in anti-terror programs that we know have failed uh, miserably. And so that's something that is really very uh, distressing. And I hope that we've learned now that this is, you know, any war, whether it's a drone war or, or an actual war, do have victims. And the victims, most of the time, um, are not represented in, in the U.S. media and within U.S. policymakers. Uh, in terms of the current war, uh, and, and again, I will refer back to the German report uh, that was published. Uh, this was the, their security apparatus published it, which is quite unusual for the Ger uh, German intelligence to publish a report like that. Actually, Merkel had to apologize because the Saudis were mad uh, about that report being published. They basically say in that report that Mohammed bin Salman waged the war on Yemen so he will become the next king of Saudi Arabia because at that point in time, it were the, the successor to King Salman was his cousin, Mohammed bin Naif. And so he wanted to become a national hero and advance his position to be the next king. Um, and since that didn't work because he did not win a war that he thought would take two weeks to two months maximum uh, on the Yemeni people, uh, he had to devise another way to get rid of his uh, cousin, Mohammed bin Naif. And now he is the successor or, or the expected successor. Uh we have just a, a couple of minutes left. Aisha, Juman, uh, people can share this video and audio. Uh, they can call Congress. They can sign petitions to Congress at rootsaction.org, at worldbeyondwar.org, at many places. What else can people do uh, to, to, to end this war? Again, be educated, learn about what's going on in Yemen, and know that the U.S. is complicit, and that know that without the U.S. support, this war would not have started and this war would not continue and that it is time after eight years to stop this war. The Yemeni people can no longer bear the burden of the aggression. And now with uh, the issue of wheat uh, you know, prices going up, we already have a country that has a destroyed economy 
uh, people cannot don't even make a dollar a day. 80% of the Yemeni people don't even make a dollar a day. So, and with food prices going up, there is really an actual risk of genocide against the Yemeni people. Please, please uh, call your representative, call your senator, and ask that the U.S. does not participate in genocide against the people of Yemen. When you get done asking, start demanding. Uh, Aisha Juman, very, very well said. Uh, Aisha is the founder and president of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. Aisha Juman, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk World Radio. Thank you very much, David. And thank you to your listeners as well. This is Talk World Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talkworldradio.org. Talk World Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way.